Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Vody Bauckham called Family Driven Faith. Listen to the Vody Bauckham collection from Word MP3, now available on Canon Plus. I've asked Bruce Eder, who is the Veritas Press online uh, administrator, administrating the courses online, to come and introduce our speaker tonight. Exactly a year ago, my wife and I were on a trip, one of those long summer trips in the van with all the kids, finally got about 80% of them asleep, and my wife starts clicking through the radio stations. Okay, this is, this is a long trip. Find me something good, honey. Find me something good. She's going through the radio station. That song, some talk. Whoa, 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 back up, back up, whoa, back up, back up. I don't, I don't remember what it was. Back up. She goes back. Family worship, classical education, homeschool. Whoa, whoa, who is this guy? People don't talk like this on the radio. You don't hear this on the radio. I never hear this on the radio. Who is this guy? We listen to him some more. We listen to him some more. Finally, we heard enough <laughs> to the point that when we got home from that trip, we went straight into the house. This is like an eight-hour trip. You know, usually check the mail, see how the dog is, whatever. Eight-hour trip. We get home, straight to the computer, find the website, order the book immediately. Of course, you know who that was on the radio. It was Vody Bauckham. And I was, that's how we began knowing about who Vody Bauckham was. And uh, when, when we continued to listen to the, the radio station, you know, and they mentioned his name. I was like, you ever heard of that guy? I've never heard of that guy, but it sounds like we should have heard of that guy. So, uh, Vody Bauckham is the pastor of preaching at Grace Family Baptist Church in Spring, Texas. Uh, he did not come to faith in Christ until his freshman year in college. Uh, he was then discipled by two of his teammates on the Rice University football team. Uh, he uh, holds degrees from Houston Baptist University, B.A. in Christianity and a B.A. in Sociology, uh, from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, a Master of Divinity, and from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, a D.Min. Uh, Vody has four children, Jasmine, Trey, Elijah, and Asher, and his son Trey, whom many of you have probably seen, has been traveling with him for the last couple of years on most of his trips. Uh, he is the author of, of several books, including The Ever-Loving Truth, Family-Driven Faith, The Supremacy of Christ in the Postmodern World, and What He Must Be. So I'm glad that uh, you could come tonight to hear Vody Bauckham. I'm sure that you'll be challenged, and it'll be quite a treat. So let's welcome uh, Vody Bauckham. Well, it is good to be here with you this evening, and I'm excited about the opportunity um, to share with you about family driven faith. Uh, let me just, first of all, give you a brief synopsis of how the, the message of family driven faith, the book Family Driven Faith, came about. Um, I grew up in a single parent home, I was raised by a single teenage Buddhist mother in um, not the best neighborhood in the world. Uh, not only was I raised without my father, but when I was growing up, I, I, I grew up in the projects in South Central Los Angeles, 
I, I didn't have a friend who had a father who lived with him. I, I didn't know what that looked like. I remember one day when these, these two young men uh, who were from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I remember several things about them. One of the things I remember is that they were from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I remember because when they first said it, I thought they said they were from Antarctica. You know, and uh, I'm, I didn't think there were people in Antarctica, let alone black people, you know, in Antarctica. And, uh, but, but they assured me that, no, they were from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Almost as cold, but not quite. Um, and the other thing that was intriguing to me was we, we used to play in this big field in the middle of the project where we lived. It was just the perfect football field. It was, I don't know how long it was. Maybe it was 40 yards long and maybe 15, 20 yards wide. But when you're a kid and you're looking for a football field, that was a perfect place to play. Other than the sprinklers that ran down the middle of it, it was perfect. You just had to learn how to dodge those and you were okay. But they came and they played with us. And I remember that several of us made our way to their apartment. And none of us said a word about why we would occasionally make our way to their apartment. But the bottom line was their father lived with them. I didn't know anybody whose father lived with them. I have 25 first cousins. 25. Out of my 25 first cousins, five of them had a father in their home growing up. All five of them were siblings. That's it. None of the rest of my first cousins had a father in their home. Among those 25 first cousins, if you want to know the kind of legacy and the kind of fruit that that has borne in our lives, I have one cousin, one of my 25 first cousins who is currently married to and living with a spouse. That's it. That's it. Just the one. Eight of the 25 have been married. There is one of the 25 who is currently living with a spouse. 78% of the children of my first cousins were born out of wedlock. This is the legacy from which I came. My wife Bridget and I got married the summer between my sophomore and junior years in college. And it was interesting. It was a very interesting time for us because it was at that time uh, I was a relatively new believer. And uh, I, I just didn't realize that there were certain parts of the Bible, not only that I hadn't read, but that I didn't even have access to. Uh, because evidently over in Second Hesitations, it says, Thou shalt not marry until after college. Um, but, but I hadn't found Second Hesitations yet. Um, and, and so I, I, I got married somewhere between my sophomore and junior year in college. Uh, the only people to whom I had to defend that decision were Christians. Non-Christian people were excited about it. In fact, they, some of them were even impressed by the fact that I would take my faith that seriously, that, that I would get married and, and not wait until after I finished college to get married. But Christian people just yeah, Christian people were up in arms that we would actually do that, that we would make that determination. I remember one conversation in particular. Uh, I had a conversation and, and, and this one man in our church was, thought he was doing the right thing and asking me these questions. He and his wife asking me these questions about us getting married and why we're getting married. Because I met her January 21st. We got married June 30th. And they were asking me questions about, you know, we're getting married and, you know, why we don't wait until we graduate. And man, that's two years from now. I said, well, yeah, but see, you. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. It's two years from now. Do you know? I, I don't know a whole lot about the Bible, but here's what I know. 
the wisest man in the Bible, the strongest man in the Bible, and the most godly man in the Bible all fell to sexual sin. I am not wiser than Solomon. I am not stronger than Samson. And I'm not more godly than David. I'm getting married. <laughs> and so we got married. Well, then we violated first hesitations. We had our first child in 10 months. Because we were what you call efficient. And again, the Christian community just all up in arms. What's wrong with you people? You get married and you start having babies and... Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> but it was difficult. It was difficult. It wasn't difficult because of the, the normal struggles of a young couple starting out a family and the, the financial difficulties and all these sort of things. It didn't matter. We could have lived in a cardboard box. We'd have been happy. We'd have been content. That wasn't the difficulty. The difficulty for us was last two generations, both sides of our family, all of our siblings, our parents, and all of their siblings. Last two generations, both sides of our family, 25 marriages, 22 divorces. Who are we going to go to? Three, three marriages, last two generations stayed together. Ours was one of those three. Another one of those three was my aunt and uncle who had those five children and he died prematurely. And the other of those three was my uncle and my aunt who had one child that they raised who was the product of an adulterous affair. That was it. What were we going to do? Well, a couple of things we knew. Number one, we knew we had to get into this book and figure out how to be a husband, to be a wife, to be a mother, and to be a father. And number two, we knew we had to find people who were doing it well. Not necessarily people who were doing it perfectly. There's nobody who's doing it perfectly. But we had to find people who were doing it well. And hang out with those people until they told us we bothered them. And so that became our goal. Those two things. Number one, to find out what the Word of God has to say about these issues of marriage and family. And number two, to find people who are doing it well so that we could spend as much time with them as possible. And learn as much as we could from them as possible. Because we had made a determination. And that determination that we had made was that we were not going to be a statistic. That that was not going to happen. I remember our first, I remember vividly our first big argument, you know. And here we were, and we just had this argument. It was, it was so huge that I can't even remember what it was about. But, you know, when, when you're a newlywed and you argue, it just seems like the end of the world. And so we were in different parts of the apartment. And finally, when all was said and done and the smoke cleared, we, we apologized and, and we made up. And we, we learned two things. Number one, that we really enjoyed making up. And, and number two, that, that we could get past difficulties. Now, it may not seem like a big deal to you, but we hadn't seen people stay together. We were both broken over the fact that here we were, it was already over, and we had just gotten married. Because the concept of reconciliation was not something with which we were familiar so we figured out that we could do this. And we said, you know, if we could do this, we could just, like, never break up. We could stay together forever. When we had our Cortez moment, you know, burn the ships. 
We did. You ever thought about that? Hey, why did he call us out here on the beach? I don't know. Whose ship is that on fire? I believe that would be ours. <laughs> we had that moment. We're staying here. We're not going anywhere. That was our determination. We took the D word off the table. She wouldn't give up homicide as an option, but divorce, <laughs> we took off the table. And there's a passage of scripture that became just so dear to us, and really the foundation for um, family-driven faith, and that's Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's a familiar passage, but like a lot of familiar passages, sometimes we become jaded. And so tonight, I just want us to look at this passage of scripture, this very simple, straightforward passage of scripture. And hear what it has to say to us. And, and here's why we so love Deuteronomy chapter 6. The, the, the children of Israel come into this promised land. Now you remember they had an opportunity to come in before. But when they have an opportunity to come in before, the spies go into the land and they scout out the land. And they come back and they come back with two reports. The majority of them come back and they say, it's everything God said it would be. It's all there. However... The people there are intimidating. We look like grasshoppers in their sight. And in our sight. Grasshoppers, I tell you. We can't do it. There was a minority report, however. Joshua and Caleb. Yes, everything God said is there, is there. Yes, those people are intimidating, but God can take them. And so the people rose up and said, we will have faith. Let's go take the... No. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. And God judged them. But he judged them mercifully. Why? He allowed them to wander in the desert for 40 years until the entire generation was wiped out. Now you hear that and you say, I don't know, wandering in the desert for 40 years to be wiped out doesn't sound very merciful to me. Really? You don't think so? Why don't you ask Ananias and Sapphira if that's merciful? Oh, I'm sorry. You can't. God killed them. In church, no less. wonder what they would have given for 40 years to wander in the wilderness. Mercifully, mercifully, God allows a generation to rise up and go and possess the land. Now before they go and possess the land, Moses stands before them and preaches a series of sermons in which he gives the law again. Thus the name of the book, Deuteronomy. Deutero to repeat the namas for law. And as he repeats the law again, he basically gives them instruction as to how they are to live as a distinct, as the distinguished people of God in the midst of a culture that is diametrically opposed to everything they stand for. I don't know about you, but that sounds like something I need. Amen? How do we continue to exist and to distinguish ourselves as God's people in the midst of this culture? That is so utterly and diametrically opposed to everything we're supposed to be about. How do we continue to swim in this stream and not stink? That's the question. And Moses gives the answer here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Look at me beginning there at the first verse. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. 
that you may fear the Lord your God, you, your sons, and your sons' sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I'm commanding you, all the days of your life. So that's the first thing. Keep God's commandments. And that's what he wants to say here. In chapter 5, he's given the Ten Commandments. He's given the Decalogue in chapter 5. And now he says, this is what God's told me, and he's told me to give this to you so that you will be the distinct and distinguished people of God in the midst of this culture, first and foremost, because you keep the commandments of God rather than folding yourself into the culture, in the world, but not of the world. That you keep the commandments of God and not just you. But you and your sons and your sons' sons. You know the first piece of this entire process of getting our houses in order and moving toward what I like to call family-driven faith is having a multi-generational vision. That's the first piece, is having a multi-generational vision. Unfortunately for most of us, the extent of our multi-generational vision is this. I want... To give my children more stuff than my parents gave me, and then educate them sufficiently so that they can give my grandkids more than I gave them. That, that's success. That's the American dream. The American dream, the dream of the immigrant, to come here to this land of opportunity so that we can have more here in the land of opportunity than we could have had in the mother country. And so that our children will have a better life financially than we had, and our children's children will have a better life financially than even they had. And perhaps we can make our mark here in the land of plenty and the land of promise. And that's it. That's the extent of it. Here's the problem. We have bigger houses than our ancestors had. We have bigger bank accounts than our ancestors had. We have more conveniences than our ancestors had. Unless you just got some filthy, stank, nasty, rich ancestors. We have more than they had. But where it matters, we lag far behind. We've been completely folded into the culture. We look like the culture. We smell like the culture. We taste like the culture. We are not distinct from the culture. We are the culture. Because we haven't had this multi-generational vision. And when I talk about a multi-generational vision, I'm not just talking about passing along wealth from generation to generation. And by the way, that is important, that we pass on wealth from generation to generation. That's a piece of the puzzle. But more importantly than that is that we pass on this obedience to the law of God. That we teach our children and we teach our children's children to walk and follow hard after God. That we teach them to obey the laws of God. That we teach them the difference between us and them. That we teach them the difference between the covenantal people of God People who belong to the world. Not so that they stick their noses up in the air and think that they're better. No, absolutely not. They know that it's the grace of God and nothing but the grace of God that has distinguished them. 
and that we pursue God by His grace. We pursue righteousness by His grace. We pursue holiness by His grace. I can't make my children righteous. I love what Peter says in his sermon there in Acts chapter 2. This promise is for you and those who are far off. But don't miss the caveat. All those whom the Lord will call unto himself. So Peter, Peter holds you know, these, these two concepts in the perfect balance. On the one hand, we are a people with multi-generational vision. And we do everything that we can, everything in our power to see to it that we pass on the faith to the next generation. But on the other hand, we recognize that we are completely and utterly incapable in and of ourselves by the virtue of anything that we do of producing righteousness in our children or our children's children. That's a work of grace. God does that. God does that. And that ought to keep us on our face before Almighty God. Praying that our children would be law keepers. Praying that our children would walk in righteousness. Here's what's interesting about this. You know, if you, for example, read Blackstone's commentary on the law. You look at Blackstone, which, by the way, next to the Bible, next to the Bible, was the most popular book in colonial America. Next to the Bible. And you look at the early American common law. Early American common law is based in large part on the case laws in Exodus. Blackstone believed that all law was based on the law of God. But now, generations later, we say things like, well, you can't legislate morality. Ironically, morality is the only thing you can legislate. All laws are moral laws. Well, we don't want to force our religious beliefs on others. Okay, great. If we don't want to force our religious beliefs on others, and if we don't want to bring our religious beliefs and the law of God to bear in public discourse, then pray tell, what's the alternative? No to Christian theism. Yes to secular humanism as the basis for the laws of our land. I think not. I think not. The law of God. We need to love the law of God. Many of the problems that have arisen in our culture is a direct result of us not having a multi-generational vision of raising up children who will live for, long for, love, and keep the very law of God. Not just this concept of multi-generational wealth being passed down from one generation to the next. But the keeping of the law of God. Look at what he says. By keeping the statutes and the commandments which I'm commanding you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. Is it well with you? Hear what I'm saying and do this. Why? So that it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. There are the two things. That it may go well with you. Three things, actually. That you may have long life in the land. This is not the individual. This is the covenant community. That you may have long life in the land. That it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly. 
Long life in the land. Go well with you. Multiply greatly. That's it. That's multi-generational vision. That's it. God, give us long life in the land. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God, please make it go well with us. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God, please allow us to multiply greatly. No, 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 no. Boy for me and a girl for you. Praise the Lord. We're finally through. That's the cultural attitude and mindset that we bought into. That's not the biblical vision. It's not. The biblical vision is that children are a blessing, that they're a reward, that they're a gift from Almighty God, and that they are the hopes of multi-generational vision. So how do we do this? It's like beginning here in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here's what's interesting. In the Hebrew, that's actually a play on words. It really doesn't come across. It's very difficult even to translate in the English language. But in the Hebrew, it's beautiful. It's poetic. And it's actually almost, almost a play on words. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, your Elohim is one Yahweh. Interestingly enough, that term Yahweh, the name of the covenant-keeping God, that term Elohim, on the other hand, actually, if you take it out of its context here, it's actually a plural term name for God. And when you talk about the pagans who worship multiple gods, guess what word you use? Elohim. Now, interestingly enough, here's what he's saying. They're about to go into a land that worships Elohim, many gods. But Yahweh, covenant-keeping God, your Elohim is one Yahweh. You put them together, and here's what he's saying, basically. You're going into a land where they worship multiple gods, and they have a god for everything, which is not God at all. But you have a God who is everything. We want to experience family-driven faith. Here's where we begin. We worship God without rivals. We worship God without rivals. We must reject syncretism. We must reject any attempt to unite the worship of God or pollute the worship of God with the worship of false gods or any idols. We must. We simply must. There are no two ways about it. We have to be relentless on this point. And unfortunately, in our culture, that's become more and more difficult to do. Because in our culture, the ultimate virtue is the virtue of tolerance. And we believe that we have to be tolerant and not narrow-minded. Not exclusivistic in our approach to things. But, you know, here's the problem. God's not tolerant. Amen. Just look at the first four commandments. Commandment number one. I'm God, you don't get another one. That's intolerant. You think that's intolerant? He goes a step further. Commandment number two. Don't even make anything that looks like me. Folks, that's intolerant. Commandment number three. Don't mess with my name. Commandment number four, while you're at it, don't mess with my day. God is intolerant. But that's okay. Because God's not running for God. He was the only one around when the votes were cast, and there's never going to be a recount. He's God all by himself. Do we communicate this to our children? 
Do we teach our children that there is but one God and we worship Him and we worship Him alone? Do we teach that to our children? Are we relentless on this matter? You know, I was uh, at a conference a while back, not too long ago, and while at this conference, there were, were, was a band there, and yeah, a lot of young college kids were playing with the band, and they were great. I mean, they, they, they just, they were skillful players, and they loved God from, you know, what I can tell, and I, I knew some of them, a couple of them I didn't know, and one young guy had a tattoo on it, and, and this tattoo was actually a yin-yang tattoo, you know, the, the, the black... You know, curly teardrop over the white curly teardrop. Yeah, I just kind of took a minute to chat with him about it. I said, dude, what are you thinking? It's my first time meeting him, by the way. <laughs> and he said, well, I said, do you know what that is? You ever heard of Taoism? No, I don't know what Taoism. What's Taoism? You never heard of Taoism? You're wearing a yin and yang tattoo. You know what that symbolizes? What? No, I, well, I, 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 so we sat down for half an hour and had a conversation about Eastern mysticism and what he was wearing on his body as he stood up, performing like one of the sons of Korah, leading God's people before the throne of grace to worship Almighty God with an idolatrous tattoo marked on his body. As though he belonged to another. He wasn't trying to. He just saw it and thought it was cool. But are we relentless in this regard? Are we? Or are we okay with the occasional worship of another? Every thought is to be taken captive. To the obedience of Christ. And Christ alone. This area is of utmost importance. I'm more sensitive to this area, again, because of my, my background and having grown up with a mother who was a Buddhist. By the way, my mother was not raised as a Buddhist. My mother converted to Buddhism as a young woman. Um, and interestingly enough, um, there was a movie. People ask me this frequently. How did, how did your, your mother, I, what, what, how, how did, what, what, what happened? You know, how, how does a young black woman in Los Angeles, California end up in Buddhism? Well, actually, you know, there was a, there was a movie. There's a movie actually about the life of Tina Turner called What's Love Got to Do With It? Not a lot of people saw the movie about Tina Turner, but what was interesting about that movie was that in the movie, there was a scene where, you know, Ike and Tina had their last knockdown, drag out fight. And Tina gets her stuff and she leaves Ike finally and she goes to the home of one of her former backup singers in Los Angeles. Now when she goes to the home, she's just all, you know, messed up and she's been in a fight and her clothes are messed up. The girl brings her in and the girl happened to be chanting at the time in front of a gohanza. This woman was part of a growing Buddhist community among blacks in Los Angeles during the 60s and 70s, which is how Tina Turner became a Buddhist. Exact same community that my mother was a part of. You know why? Because for the first time in my mother's life, she met people whose walk matched their spiritual talk. She was raised going to church by my grandmother. 
who had seven children from five different men. And several other members of our family who lived absolutely pagan lives, but were in church every time the doors opened. They did not worship God without rivals. And as a result, my mother, who was part of their multi-generational legacy, just basically consummated the idolatry and just went all the way to another religion. Now, I'm happy to stand before you tonight and tell you that my mother is a born-again, blood-washed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ today. But that's what happened. That's what happened. What do we communicate to our children about whom we worship? How do we communicate that to our children? Are we careful about that? We must be. We must be. Look at the next part of this text. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. We must be a people who love God. We must be a people whose our home, our family, must be marked by this kind of love. And by the way, interestingly enough, this is not the Greco-Roman myth of romantic love. Another of the Greco-Roman concepts that has just conquered us as a people. This whole idea of Cupid and, you know, this little cherub and his arrow and this Greco-Roman myth that says love is an overwhelming, uncontrollable, sensual force. That's what we believe about love. It's an overwhelming, uncontrollable, and sensual force. That's why we use phrases like, this thing is bigger than both of us. You have to say it like that to her, it doesn't work, you know. (laughs) Or, or, Or another one. We don't choose who we fall in love with help you. Anything you can fall into, you can climb out of. (laughs) Or or my favorite, the heart wants what it wants. You know what all these things have in common? These are all pathetic excuses that men and women use when they leave their spouse for someone else. I say pathetic because they don't hold water. This thing's bigger than both of us. No, it's not. We don't choose who we fall in love with. Yes, you do. The heart wants what it wants. Yeah, but you don't have to give it. That's a myth. And we excuse ourselves, you know, this kind of shrug of the shoulders, you know. What are you going to do? I mean, here I was. I fell in love. What are you going to do? You know what biblical love is? When you exegete these words that he uses here, with all your heart, the word that he uses there. It's, interestingly enough, when Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, quotes this passage of scripture, he adds a dimension. He adds the dimension of the mind. Well, why? Because he thought Moses was doing an inadequate job? No, because he's speaking to a Greek culture and he's communicating a Hebrew passage of scripture. You cannot understand this Hebrew word for, for, for heart, for leb. You cannot understand it apart from the mind. Your heart's a muscle that pumps blood. That's all it does. Your heart knows nothing, wants nothing, loves nothing, yearns for nothing. It just sits there in the middle of your chest going, boom, 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 boom. That's all your heart does. So when the Bible talks about your heart and love, or your heart and knowing, or your heart and wanting, it's always speaking in figurative terms about an aspect of your mind. Specifically, 
This refers to our volition and our will. The other word he uses here, with, with all your soul, your nephesh, literally, you, you know, your intestines. I tried this one time. I, I one time with my wife. I, I said, Bridget, I love you with all my intestines. <laughs> Didn't have the desired effect. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. Whenever you, whenever you, they use this term, though, because they're referring to the seat of the emotions. When you're frightened, you, where? Right here. When you're nervous, you say you have butterflies in your stomach. So the seat of the emotions, the will, the seat of the emotions. And finally, the last word, it's almost impossible to translate. Your muchness, from your muchness, from your effort, from your strength, from your actions. You put these words together and here's biblical love. It's an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. An act of the will, it is a choice. We do choose in love. It is an act of the will. We choose. Every day we choose. Now here's what's interesting. If we communicate this Greco-Roman myth of romantic love within the context of our homes, as it relates to you know, our relationships with one another, then when we talk to our children about the love of God, guess what they view it as? The Greco-Roman myth. Well, if the Greco-Roman myth is this overwhelming, uncontrollable, sensual kind of love that is capricious and it's here today and gone tomorrow. What does that say about the God who loves me and how I'm supposed to love God? But when you understand that it's an act of the will, it is a choice. And when we communicate that in the way that we love one another and the way that we speak to them about our love for God, it says something. Love is an act of the will. We do choose in love. Tell my wife all the time, girl, you leave me, I'm going with you. It's a choice. We do choose to love. It is an act of the will. That's where it starts. And we communicate volumes. Think about this from a multi-generational perspective. We communicate volumes by this kind of love for one another and this kind of love relationship with God. It is an act of the will. We choose. We push through. Sometimes we fight through because of the love that we have. You know, as a pastor, I've often had the misfortune of speaking with individuals, mainly men, who are talking about not loving their wives. or leaving. I've seen what this Greco-Roman myth can do. I've watched it. I've seen it. I've sat across from men who bought that lie. They're leaving. And they'll say things like, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just not happy anymore. And I just cannot believe that God would want me to remain in this marriage and be unhappy. Now, maybe this says something about me and my counseling abilities. But when I hear that, I have to say the first thing that comes to my mind. Sir, let me see if I understand you correctly. The father looked upon his son, the spotless, sinless lamb of God, crushed him and killed him for his glory. But you, he wouldn't want unhappy. You got to help me with that one. What's that? Third hesitations? I don't, I don't. That, that's not that's not in the book. Unhappy may be right where he wants you. Suck it up. And then there's this whole I just don't love her anymore. 
Okay, well, fine. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Sir, just go home and love your wife. No, you don't understand. I don't love her. No, this is an act of the will. You go home and you choose to love your wife because God commanded you to love your wife. Go do it. Well, I just don't even know if I could do that. I mean, she, I moved out. Okay, fine. She's still your neighbor. She's your closest neighbor. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So go home and love her because she's your neighbor. Well, I just, I don't, I don't even, I don't, oh, come on now. She's a believer. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. You have love for one another. So go home and love her because she's a believer. And you're commanded to love other believers. Well, I don't even know if she's saved. That's fine. Jesus said, love your enemies. Go home and love her. There is no excuse under the sun for a man not to love his wife. It's an act of the will. It is a choice. We choose to love. We fight to love. We refuse to stop loving. And when we do so, we paint a picture of the God who loves us and the love relationship we have with God. You know what the difference is? The Greco-Roman myth puts us in this position. I just don't know if I'm a Christian. Why? Because I just don't feel like God's close to me right now. The biblical definition, love is first and foremost an act of the will. I just don't feel like God loves me. That's fine. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to read the account of the crucifixion, and then I double-dog dare you to look at God and say, I don't feel like you love me. It's an act of the will. It's accompanied by emotion. All your heart, all your soul, your nephesh, the seat of the emotions. It's an act of the will. It's accompanied by emotion, which means it's not led by emotion, <coughs> ladies. It's not, it's, not led, it's not led by emotion. That's teenage girl love. Oh, my God, I love him. <laughs> they need to put this month on the end of that, you know? You don't even know him. It's a poster on the wall. Oh, my God, I love him. Love's not led by emotion. It's also not void of emotion. There's another one I get from guys, you know, a couple sitting there. And we're just going. He just, I don't just don't, I don't get it. He just doesn't act like he loves me. I don't, he's just not, he just not. To which the man responds, I'm just, I'm just not an emotional man. I don't know what she wants from me. Told her I loved her when we got married. If I changed my mind, I'd let her know. <laughs> Another insight into my counseling abilities. I say, sir, you just lied to me and your wife. And I'm going to prove it to you. What do you mean? I'm just not. I'm, not, I'm an engineering type. I'm an, I'm an accounting type. I'm an whatever. I'm just not an emotional man. Okay, here's what I know. When you're on the golf course and you shank one, you don't sit there and say, I seem to have hit that one poorly. <laughs> When you're watching a ball game and your team's getting beat like a tied-up goat, you don't just sit there and say, they seem to have far more points than we do right now. (laughs) If you went into work tomorrow and they had your things packed up on the curb, you wouldn't stand there and say, huh, I certainly enjoyed the time that I was able to serve here. (laughs) Every man is an emotional man. 
And if we tell our wives we're not, here's what we just said to them. You don't matter to me as much as my golf game, my favorite sports team, or my job. And sir, if that's you, repent. Because that's sin. You've been robbing your wife of your emotions. And you've been painting a picture that is an erroneous picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And your children have been watching it. And you need to repent to your wife, to your children, and most of all before Almighty God. Because you're in sin. Biblical love is an act of the will. It is accompanied by emotion. And it leads to action on behalf of its object. In the words of that theologian Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? (laughs) Love acts on behalf of its object. We build our homes on this kind of love. If we're modeling from a multi-generational perspective, If we have children growing up in our homes, seeing this kind of love reciprocated in the home, demonstrated toward them, and taught as the way we love God and the way God loves us. By the way, if you want to illustrate this to your children, that this is what real love is, and that this is how God loves us, you just take them to the Garden of Gethsemane. Pray for me. My soul is troubled to the point of death, Jesus says to his disciples. And he goes and he throws himself on the ground over and over and over again. And he's sweating as drops of blood. And he says, Father, if there is any other way, let this bitter cup pass from me. Then he gets to that moment. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It was an act of the will. It was a choice. It was accompanied by emotion. And it was on behalf of its object. Jesus didn't go to the cross for himself. He went for his bride. That's love. Jesus didn't go to the cross because Cupid shot him with an arrow. He didn't go to the cross because this thing was bigger than both of us. Or we don't choose who we fall in love with. Or the heart wants what it wants. No, it was an act of the will. It was a choice. He fought through it all night long. And he chose to love. It was accompanied by great emotion. And it led to action on behalf of its object. You don't think God loves you. You go to the Garden of Gethsemane and you go the next day to the cross. And you see it there. You see it there. But it all begins with the proper definition. How do we then love God? Do we wait until we feel something? No. It's an act of the will. We choose to be a people who love God, who follow hard after God. It's accompanied by emotion. We do get to that point of emotion with our God. It's not led by emotion, but it's not void of emotion either. And it leads to action on behalf of its object. We live our life in obedience to God. John says in 1 John 2, if we love Him, we'll keep His commandments. It's real simple. It's real simple. If you love Him, you'll keep His commandments. We build our home on that kind of love. Both vertically and horizontally. This is an important aspect of family driven faith. This is huge. And let me just say a word to those who perhaps have come here and you've dealt with the pain of divorce in your life. 
And you sit here and you think, oh, 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 well, great. Now look what I've done. Look at the picture that I've painted, you know, for my children. Now they're sitting there going, mommy left daddy. When is God going to leave me? Well, this is not about you being beat up over that. But this may be about you going and have a conversation with your children and telling them what happened. It's not God's way. Uh, and I'm sorry. And that's not how God loves us. And that's not how we're supposed to love one another. And I'm sorry that you had to experience that. But know this. And know this for certain. Your parents are sinful people. And we painted a poor example and we're sorry. But the God whom we serve does not divorce. You may need to have that conversation. Instead of acting like it didn't happen. Instead of acting like you did not scar your children, it did. And I'm not saying it was your fault. It's not about fault. That scars children. And it warps the way they view the love of God. And nobody knows that more than somebody who's been through it. And again, this is not about you being beaten up. That's not what this is about. This is about you recognizing a tool that the enemy would love to use as a club over the head of your children when they think about the love of God. And it's about you laying yourself prostrate before God and begging him to take that tool away. And coming before them in repentance so that they recognize that that was not God. It was not. And that was not biblical love. It was not. It was a negation thereof. The next part of this text, for the sake of time, let's, let's pick up steam here. That was important for us to get. And these words that I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. That's interesting. If we, if we hadn't talked about the way he used heart, then here's what we'd be left with. These words that I'm commanding you today shall be on your emotions? No. These words that I'm commanding you today shall be imprinted on your will. You see that? These words that I'm commanding you today shall be imprinted on your volition. They should be imprinted on your will. How does that happen? We learn to think biblically about everything. I, I believe biblical worldview is the way that we get here. We take every aspect of our life and bring it into submission and to subjection to Christ and his cross. Every aspect of our life. So that our very will is imprinted by the law of God, by the commandments of God. It changes what we desire. It changes what we want. It changes what we yearn for. It changes what we long for. Have you ever met someone, you know, living down in Texas, you ever met someone who grew up in a culture where they eat hot peppers? You ever? We have a lot of people in, in, in Texas who are from Mexico, from South America, from other parts of the world, where they just eat hot stuff. There's some Asian cultures, too, where people just eat hot stuff. And you'll go to a restaurant, and you're sitting there, and you're sweating, and you're saying to yourself, okay, this is so hot, it doesn't even taste good. Why does anybody want this? New Mexico. A lot of times you go to New Mexico, and you go to these restaurants, and there's just stuff that's just hot. But people who grew up there... They eat that stuff, and you look at them, and it's, it's not affecting them, and they're loving it, and they're asking for more of it, and they think it's the greatest tasting thing in the history of the world. Why? You know they've been trained to enjoy that? 
They've developed a taste for it. You know, you can develop a taste for the things of God so that the law of God is imprinted on your very will and you don't even want the things that you used to want. Anybody ever been to a reunion? Isn't it interesting? You go to school and you're not converted, you're not a believer, and all of a sudden, you go back 20 years later, you're converted, you're a believer, you're not the same person, and all of a sudden, a couple of things happen. Number one, people look at you and they say, okay, that's not the same person. It has nothing to do with weight or hair or whatever. And the second thing is, you say to yourself, I can't believe I used to even want this stuff. They're sitting up there talking about the things that they used to do as though they can't wait to do them again. And you're hearing it going, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed that that was ever me. His law has been imprinted on your will. That's our goal with our children in our home. That they are raised in such a way that the law of God is imprinted on their will. So that we can force them to be righteous? No. Uh-uh. We can't force our children to be righteous. Oh, but we can give them the right appetites. We can't force my children to like vegetables. I can shovel them in there, though. <laughs> Verse 7. How do we do that? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall disciple your children. You shall surround your children's entire life with this teaching. That's how you imprint their will. It's interesting. I had a conversation with a woman once. I was in Amarillo, Texas. And the reason I remember I was in Amarillo, Texas, well, there's a couple of reasons. But I was doing a conference there in Amarillo. And as I was doing this conference, and... uh, you know, you mentioned, brother, you know, somebody talking about all these things and home education and talking about, you know, worldview training, family worship and all this stuff. And that stuff just not happening out there all the time. Well, I'm doing this conference at this church. They asked me to come do this conference and I'm there and I'm doing the deal. And I get to the issue of education and these 14,000 seat hours and how important it is that we recognize that whoever controls our children's education is discipling them. And that's who they're going to be like. Jesus says, Luke chapter 6, verse 40. The student is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And so I get to this passage of scripture and talk about how important it is for us to have those 14,000 hours. And for us to refuse, for us to refuse to give the adversary those 14,000 hours. We can't do it. We cannot relent. We cannot give our children. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And to God that which is God's. Which do your children belong to? Caesar or God? If your children belong to Caesar, then you go ahead and give them to Caesar and let Caesar educate them. But if your children belong to God, don't render them to Caesar. Don't do it. Don't do it. For any reason, don't do it. Their wills have to be imprinted with the law of God, and that's not going to happen in Caesar's academy. And so I'm there at this church, and I I do this, and I talk about this, and I go through the history of American education, and I talk about the goal of American education, which was to eradicate biblical Christianity from these shores. That was the purpose for mandatory government education in the United States. 
to eradicate what they called religious superstition and to indoctrinate students in secular humanism. That was the goal. That was the goal. And so I'm talking about this, and I'm talking about the importance of us having those 14,000 hours and not giving all those 14,000 hours. Well, so all of a sudden, this pastor says, well, hey, we got some folks, and they, and they want to you know, cook you a meal. Oh, that's great. They want to cook me a meal. And so myself and the, the, the worship leader, we go over to this house where they were going to be cooked a meal. And all of a sudden, this family, not only is this family there, but there are about eight or ten other people there. Well, the woman whose house we went over was uh, a principal of an elementary school. Her husband was a retired assistant superintendent. There was also the acting assistant superintendent. There are about four or five high school teachers, four or five elementary school teachers, and a whole host of other people over for this meal that was prepared for me. <laughs> and so here we are, you know, here we are, and we eat this meal, and finally the lady chimes in, and we begin to have the discussion about what I said about Deuteronomy chapter 6 and all this sort of stuff. And so we're having this conversation, and here's where she starts. She says, you know... I understand what you're saying, and I know maybe if you were in Houston, you know, big city, something like that, I understand that. But you need to understand that it's different here. By the way, everybody's schools are different. Our schools are different. Everybody says that. Not everybody. Everybody says that, okay? <laughs> yeah, our schools are different. All of these, these are Christian teachers. We have Christian teachers in our school. So our assistant superintendent is a Christian. Our superintendent of the schools here in Amarillo is a Christian. And the assistant superintendent and the superintendent of the schools get together every week to pray for these students in these schools. Now, the reason I remember that this was Amarillo, Texas is because I don't usually arm myself with information about the performance of the school districts in places where I'm going to preach. But I had a conversation with a dear friend of mine, Dr. Bruce Short, who wrote the book, The Harsh Truth About Public Schools. Told him where I was going, and he said, I just found out some interesting stuff about Amarillo. Gave it to me. So she says, our superintendent, our assistant superintendent, they pray for it. And I said, oh, really? I said, is that why Amarillo School District has the highest rate of teen pregnancy in the state of Texas? Uh, 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 and the second highest dropout rate? Uh, By the way, which one of you Christian teachers are actually writing curriculum? Because the curriculum is the teacher. Which one of you is writing curriculum? Uh, Okay. Well, I just, well, I just, well, well, we're just committed to these schools. That's great. Y'all go ahead and be committed to those schools. Teachers and students out. Great. Wonderful. You have a full orb biblical worldview. You go behind the front lines and you fight. However, when our troops are in training, we do not send them to the enemy to be prepared to defeat the enemy. Well, well, I just just feel like you weren't using Deuteronomy 6 correctly. First, I'm just whiplash because the conversation is way over here. Now she goes with Deuteronomy 6. Well, why wasn't I using Deuteronomy 6 correctly? She says these words to me. I've always thought Deuteronomy 6 referred to non-school hours. So, ma'am, I have two questions. You should teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. How is that not all day, every day? Here's my second question. What school, pray tell, was Moses sending his kids to? I mean, if it's a reference to non-school hours, Moses would have to have been sending his kids to some school 
and then doing this when they weren't there. It's unheard of. To which he responds, well, classic. I don't know about all that, but here's what I know. I'm glad my grandkids are in the public schools. And I looked at her, and I have to admit this to you, it was not my proudest moment. I say this to you beforehand, children, this is not appropriate at all. Don't try this at home. There's this guy named Bad Vody who lives inside of me. I try to let him out once a week late at night when nobody's around. But sometimes he gets loose. And before I knew what happened, this woman says, I hope my grandkids go to the public schools. And Bad Vody said, what did they ever do to you? I didn't get dessert. (laughs) We must teach the Word of God to our children. If we want to experience multi generational faithfulness, if we want to experience family driven faith, there's no two ways about it. Not only must we teach the Word of God to our children, But whatever education our children receive must be rooted in, grounded in, and taught from the Bible and a biblical worldview. It must. 14,000 seed hours. 14,000. That's their discipleship. That's their discipleship. They must be taught the Word of God. They have to be taught the Word of God. Look at the last part of this. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. We've got to mark our homes as God's territory. Uh, let me just tell you the principal way that I believe we do this is through regular family worship. We mark our home as God's territory through regular family worship. You ought to have a daily routine of worship in your home. A daily routine. It's something that has completely and utterly transformed our family and our life. If our homes belong to God, then He should be worshipped there. It ought to be part of who, our, of who we are. Our children ought to grow up and leave our homes with the memory imprinted, and just burned indelibly in the forefront of their minds, of their family gathering on a daily basis to sing together, to pray together, to read the scriptures together, to memorize and recite the catechism together. It it ought to be a daily practice. And I hear this a lot from families. And I hear this and I hear people say, okay, 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 I understand that, all right? But I don't want to move toward legalism. Isn't that moving toward legalism? Here's my question. Does the TV come on every day? How come that's not legalism? Happens every day. If you're saying that because something happens every day is legalism, then the television, that's legalism. By the way, do you do school every day? Legalism. Do you eat breakfast every day? Legalism. Yeah, but we have to eat breakfast. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. You need the Word of God more than you need breakfast. Don't give me that legalism stuff. 
God is to be worshipped in our homes. And it needs to be on a regular, ongoing basis. But I know that you are like me. You did not have this. There may be two or three people in here who had regular family worship in their homes. We did not have this. It's been a couple of hundred years since this was the norm in people's homes. So I'm not saying, again, to heap guilt on you. I'm just trying to show you where the enemy has cut the legs out from under us. We've got to. We've got to. And you know, when you do establish this routine of regular family worship, here's something that happens. When you don't do it, you sense it. You sense it. It becomes a regular, integral part of who you are. And things are just not right when it's not there. It's just not right. Here's a final piece. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities you did not build, and houses full of all good things you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Listen to this. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in the midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Here's what's interesting. He's a jealous God, and he'll wipe you off the face of the earth. Now you and I hear that, and we think nothing of it. In fact, we may even be offended by it. But if you're sitting there and you've just been in the desert for 40 years so that an entire generation could be wiped out, you're going, oh yeah, he did do that, didn't he? And he'll do it to us. And take another generation and go get it done. The final piece is that we keep our prosperity in check. He says, when you come into this land flowing with milk and honey, take care. Watch yourself. Because here's the tendency. Number one, you begin to feel like you only need God to get you things. So when you've got things, you no longer need God. And secondly... If you ever find yourself without things, you use that as the barometer as to whether or not things are going well. How many times have we looked at a person and says, oh, God has really blessed them. You know what that means? They have a lot of money. Oh, God has really blessed them. You know, rich people commit suicide. So are we saying that people who are poor aren't blessed? God has really blessed them. What does that say about our brothers and sisters who live in mud huts in sub-Saharan Africa? God hadn't blessed them? Are we really that egocentric and narcissistic and materialistic? The blessing of God is about far more. In fact, 
sometimes you see the blessing of God only when he calls you away from the stuff. I'm more blessed now ministerially than I've ever been. My last church position was a teaching pastor at a church of about 15,000 members. Now, I'm a teaching pastor at a church plant that we started two years ago. We've got 250 people coming. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Got a phone call from a church in Florida. <laughs> this church in Florida got his brand new, you know, 5,000 seat auditorium and 10,000 members on their rolls. And they called because they were looking for a pastor. And so I started giving them a list of names, you know, people that they could contact. And they said, well, no, we were calling thinking, you know, you might want to send us your resume. I said, oh, no, 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 thanks. Oh, okay. Well, what, what, you know, what, why? Oh, I, I'm, I'm, I just, man, important work going on here. Really? Yep. Well, I mean, people y'all got down there? I said, we got about 250 people coming. Oh, y'all sanctuary? No, we don't have one. We rent a facility. You heard us when we said there's 10,000 members here. New state-of-the-art 5,000-seat auditorium. I said, yeah, yeah, I heard that. Don't want it. Don't need it. You can have it. Some part of the sweetest fellowship I've ever been part of in my life. I don't get a salary. I'm blessed. In huge, immeasurable ways. More to blessing than money. He says, watch yourself, because if we're not careful, you equate the blessing of God with just purely financial things. And again, that doesn't mean that God's against you having stuff. He's not. He's not. Just by virtue of being an American, if you're anywhere around average American income, you're more wealthy than 70% of the rest of the planet. I don't know if you realize that or not. We're the wealthiest people in the history of the world, by and large. There may be sheikhs over in the Middle East who have goo gobs of money, but as a populace, nobody comes close. God's not against you having things. He's against things having you. And there's a huge difference between the two. I, I, man, I pray God just just gives you more stuff than you can shake a stick at. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to figure out a way to bless the kingdom and kingdom work with all the stuff he's given you. I pray he gives you so much stuff that you stay awake at night figuring out how you're going to keep up with giving enough of it away. Glory to God. Much rather see you like that than see you stand awake at night trying to figure out how you can just get one more thing. That's not godly. Keep your prosperity in check. Because God's a jealous God. A lot of people don't like this. You know, it's interesting. If you followed the, the, the internet um, story about Oprah and her new church, if you will, her new movement, people like Eckhart Tolle and others, this you are God new age movement. One of the things Oprah says on this video that I've watched is that 
she was in church in her 20s, and she was in a Christian church, a Baptist church, and everything was rolling along fine. But she heard the pastor say that God was a jealous God, and that didn't sit well with her, and that began her quest. She left the church because the Bible teaches that God is a jealous God, and jealousy is a bad thing. Therefore, it's wrong for God to be jealous. Can I explain something to you? God is the greatest good. Therefore, it is incumbent upon God to seek after his own good. If God seeks after anything less than the good of God, then God is seeking after something that would be idolatrous. Therefore, for God not to be a jealous God would be the theological problem, not the other way around. He's jealous for his own name. He's jealous for his own glory. And that's a good thing because there is nothing greater. And that's what we ought to be jealous for. That's what we ought to be passionate about. God is not satisfied with you or me pursuing anything but him. And that's precisely where God ought to be. Anything less would not be godly. Y'all know Oprah. Tell her, call me. (laughs) He helped work that out for her. In all seriousness, though, I believe that if we did these things, it would transform our lives and it would transform the lives of our children and our children's children. If we just just grabbed a multi-generational vision. If, if If we... Worship God without rivals. If we built our homes on a foundation of biblical love, if we sifted everything through a biblical grid and allowed it to imprint our worldview and our very will, if we taught the Word of God to our children and saw to it that they were not taught by God's rivals, If we marked our home as God's territory, and if we kept our prosperity in check, I believe we would be among the most distinct people that our culture has ever seen. And it would bring God much glory. And beyond that, it would bless us with long life in the land. It would be well with us, and we would multiply greatly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that in the midst of this culture that tries continuously to press us into its mold, that you have granted to us the means by which we can be holy and distinctly yours. We could be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We could be the salt of the earth that hasn't lost its savor. Grant by your grace that we might pursue these truths and the power of Christ 
and for his name alone. We ask these things because we believe they're in accordance with the will and the nature and the authority of Jesus. Amen. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the full Vodibachum collection from Word MP3, now available on Canon Plus.